or 20 explicit statements in the New Testament that say Jesus or the Lord or the Son of God or the Son of Man came for fill in the blank. We don't have time to look at all of those, but you can put all of them under this umbrella. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. If you want some, a fuller picture of that, I'd encourage you to read Luke 15 this week. There's three parables in Luke 15. You probably know all three of them. The first one is the lost sheep. The shepherd has 100 sheep. He goes home. He realizes he only has 99. One has wandered away, and he goes and finds the sheep, brings them back home. The next story is about a lady who has 10 silver coins, and she loses one. And when she realizes she loses it, she's lost it, she turns on the lamp and sweeps her house until she finds it. The third story is about it. It's called The Lost Son. A man had two sons, an older son and a younger son. The younger son goes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance now, which is rude and disrespectful. And all of, and the, but the dad gives it to him and says, all right, it's yours. And he gives it to him. And the son leaves home. It says The Bible says he squanders his wealth in wild living. You can fill in the blanks on what wild living is. And at some point, he's literally in pig slop. And he realizes, it'd be better for me to be a servant in my dad's house than to be living out here in pig slop on my own. And so he creates this speech in his mind. He's going to come back and grovel and beg and plead to get back in his father's house. And it's, the Bible says his father sees him a long way away, and he runs to him, and he embraces him, and he pulls him back into the family. It's this story of what it looks like for God to seek and save what was lost. You have a lost sheep that wandered away, and you might find yourself in that place. You're... Maybe you've made some decision for the Lord at some point in the past, but if somebody were to check your spiritual pulse this morning, it's pretty weak. You didn't really do anything heinous. It's just you just kind of wandered away. Busyness, life, circumstances, whatever. Now you look up and you've drifted. The coin, to me, that it's not the coin's fault necessarily that it was lost. And to me, that's kind of that's ignorance. And by that, I don't mean stupidity. I mean not knowing something. There's some people, they, just, they don't know. We're, a lot of you were raised in the Bible Belt. This is not you. Some of you weren't. You weren't raised in a home where you heard about God and Jesus and the gospel and the Bible, and, and it's new. And you're lost just because you don't know. And then there are others who are lost because you've intentionally run away. You know what you're turning your back on, and you don't care. You're turning your back on it, and you're like this lost son who says, I'm, I'm out, I'm done. I'm running away. I'm going to see what I can do on my own. All three of those categories, God's heart's the same. Seeking, actively pursuing that which is lost. And you may say, I don't feel lost. I feel fine. Everything is good. And I would just, maybe so. Sometimes it's hard to know what you don't have until you have it. It's HDTV and regular. You don't realize how good the picture on HDTV is, and you don't realize how kind of crummy the picture on your regular TV is until you can compare them. That's the difference between being lost and being found. It's fine, maybe, what you're doing, but you, just, you haven't seen what it can be. You've got life with a little L. You haven't tasted life with a capital L yet, and that's what God is trying. That's what he is seeking you for. It's to save you, to find you, to bring you into the fullness of life. So that's what we're going to look at over the next month. Today we're going to look at Matthew 5.17, where Jesus says about himself, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I met my Misty, who's my wife now. I met her 
in the spring quarter of our junior year in college. I was leading a Bible study with her best friend, and she came over late when it sounds a real holy way that we met. So she came over late one night after the deal was over, and we met. She says we met two quarters earlier, but I don't remember that. So this is our official meeting for me. That's a little bone of contention in our house. So I, for me, we met in April um, of my junior year, 1996. That's my, my junior year of college during the spring quarter. And we, had the, we were part of a campus ministry that met, it basically was a church, and we met every Wednesday. And so for the four Wednesdays after I met her, I purposefully stayed after and sought her out and we talked. Just We hung out afterwards at this place and we talked for, for four weeks. I didn't call her on the phone, we didn't do any of that, I just saw her on Wednesdays. After those four weeks, I knew I wanted to ask her out. I knew she was... Spring quarter was wrapping up. She was going to spend the summer working in Martha's Vineyard. I had a small window to move our relationship from just talking on Wednesdays to something else. And so I called her when I knew she wouldn't be there. I called her and left her a message. And I said, I'm going to ask you out the next time I see you. And if you don't want to go, you need to be ready to tell me no. Because I don't want you saying yes because I caught you off guard. So I left this voicemail with her. That said, this is what I'm going to do. I was, I was defining our relationship. We're going from just, I'm not just trying to hang out with you on Wednesday nights after Wesley anymore. I'm intentionally saying, I want to go on a date with you. So the next time I saw her, I asked her. She said yes. We went out to eat. And then she left. I helped her pack her car, and she left. And she spent the summer in Martha's Vineyard. And this is pre-email, pre-cell phone. So that was the summer that the Olympics were here in Atlanta, and I had this awesome job as a security guard. Um, and I worked from 8 at night to 8 in the morning. In my job, I, I covered third-tier targets. Not first-tier, not second-tier, third-tier targets. The two third-tier targets that I was responsible for, one was in Conyers and one was in Douglasville. And so I spent from 8 at night to 8 in the morning driving back and forth from Conyers to Douglasville watching these very precious metal boxes of AT&Ts. Apparently, they were in the middle of, they literally were in the middle of two cow fields. There was a cow that would walk by my car, and I would sit there and watch this box. And then I would drive to Conyers, and I'd watch that box. Then I'd drive back to Douglasville, and I'd watch that. That's what I did. I didn't have a gun. I didn't have a stick. I didn't have handcuffs. I didn't have a cell phone. I don't know what I was supposed to do if a terrorist attacked one of these boxes other than leave. So that was my job. This is pre-9-11. Airport was pretty, so my car didn't have air conditioning, and so occasionally I would stop at the airport, and you could go in and you could just hang out, nobody cared, and there's no place else you could go from 8 at night to 8 in the morning. And I would just sit in the terminal, and I'd write misty letters, longhand. And so we did, we traded letters back and forth that summer. We each sent each other a mixtape, good old days. Not a playlist, an actual tape that we sent each other. And that was our summer. And then when she got back, um, I lived with, eight, with seven other guys. And I remember the night that she got back to Athens and she came over to our house with her best friend. And, and I, I, I was ready to go from what we had been doing, a date and writing back and forth, talking on the phone occasionally, to dating her. And so I started asking her out, and she said yes. And we, we saw each other three or four times a week 
for three or four weeks. At the end of the, probably the fourth week, we had this conversation. I said, Misty, you're my girlfriend. And she said, great, but you're not my boyfriend. <laughs> week four, there's ten weeks in the quarter. Week four, week five, week six, week seven, week eight, week nine, it's the same. You're my girlfriend, that's great, you're not my boyfriend. I just kept asking her out and she kept saying yes. And I said, I told her, I'm going to keep asking you out until you say no. So we just kept doing that. And then right before, I remember it was right before Thanksgiving break, she said, we were out and she said, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready for you to be my boyfriend. And I proposed two weeks later. I get it while well, the getting's good. So, and then we got married six months after that. I say all that to say, I felt like as the guy, my responsibility was to define the relationship as we went. We went from just talking to each other, and I signaled to her. I didn't signal. I said, it's changing. I'm going to ask you out. I don't want to be your buddy. If, if you don't want to go out with me, then you need to be ready to say no. Then over the course of that summer, we, we were no commitment. I mean, she could have dated whoever. She, it would have hurt my feelings, but she didn't owe me anything. But we grew our relationship. And then I said, you're it for me. I want just you exclusively. And she wasn't ready for that. But I, I was defining the relationship. And then when she was ready, I proposed. And that's a different, we defined it again. And then on June 15, 1997, we defined it again. Forever. This is what we're doing. This is my commitment to you. This is your commitment to me. We defined our relationship. When we read, a lot of us, when we read the word law in the New Testament, we think police, judges, court, rules, that whole kind of world of images. And there's some truth there. What I want you to do is I want you to think in terms of defining a relationship. When you see the word law in the New Testament, almost every time it refer, it's meaning, it means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. If you were to read those first five books of the Bible, what you would see is God is trying to define his relationship with humanity. Every relationship with your end, there, there are rules. There's a law to it. There are expectations. There, there are rules. Not just in a marriage where, I, where you say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, to love and honor and cherish, all those things that we explicitly say, every other relationship. There's a law, there's rules. Some of you have been in relationships that were not well defined, and it's a train wreck because you don't know where you stand. Are we dating or are we not? Is he in, is he out? What, you don't know. It's just, it's mushy. And some of you, it's important to define a relationship for there to be a law to it, rule some common sense, this is what we're doing. That's what the first five books of the Bible do. Genesis 12, 3 says this. This is the beginning of God defining this relationship. The Lord said to Abram, who later became Abraham, leave your country and your people and your father's house and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So you see God is kind of, this is a personal DTR with Abraham. Abram, he's defining his relationship with humanity through one guy. Everything wrecked in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. And so God is, kind of, is, is doing a, an end run around all of that. And he starts with Abraham. I'm going to pick you and through you I'm going to bless everybody. So you've got Abraham and you've got his son Isaac and then his son Jacob, and then his 12 sons, mostly through Joseph, God working. The end of Genesis, you've got this family of seven, about 70 people. And then we don't hear about them for 400 years. 
from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. It's about 400 years. We don't hear anything. Then when we pick up again in Exodus, this group of 70 is now about a million people, and they're in slavery in Egypt. And God sends Moses to them to deliver them, to call them out of slavery. And that's the, the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and all that. And then in Exodus 19, God redefines the relationship. It had been, he had made this personal covenant with Abraham and through Abraham to his descendants. And now there's a million of his descendants. And God re-ups, he redefines the relationship. Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen, this is verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So what you have is God is, is defining his relationship further. with his, It was with Abraham and his descendants, and it was, what, it, was, it was a little mushy. You leave your country and you do this, I'm going to bless you through this, through your kids. And now in Exodus 19, God puts some more definition to it. And then if you read the next few chapters, it's what we know as the law. It's the Ten Commandments and all these other rules that we sometimes get and sometimes don't. But it's not just rules for the sake of rules. God's defining the relationship. He's saying, I'm a holy God. And if you're going to be in relationship with me, this is what it's going to look like. I'm going to take care of you like I've already taken care of you. He never asked them to enter into this relationship. He's proven himself. Remember, I delivered you guys from Egypt. You remember the plagues. I, you crossed the Red Sea. You remember that, right? I sustained you. I will sustain you, leading you to the promised land. We'll get to that in a second. Do you want to do this? And they said, yes, we're in. The rabbi said there's 613 commands in the first five books of the Bible. I didn't count. We'll trust them. 365 things you can't do. That's God. He's holy. And he's saying if you're going to be holy too, you're going to be set apart from everybody else. You're going to dress different. You're going to eat different. You're going to work different. 248 things you can do. You should do. You have to do. Because we're not just set apart from, we're set apart for. That's what holy means. You're going to worship different. And you're going to give different. You're going to treat each other different. So we, God is defining the terms of this relationship with his people. There are things you can't do. I'm holy, so you've got to be holy, and that's what it's going to look like. And this is what it's going to look like. There are things you can't do, and there are things that you have to do. But that's what it means to be in a relationship with me. And here's what I'm going to do for you. You can read through the first five books of the Bible and you can see these promises God makes. You're going to be the head and not the tail. You're going to be the lender and not the borrower. You're going to be first and not last. All of these promises God makes. I'm going to take care of y'all. That's, that's my end of the deal. That's how he's defining the relationship. Joshua 24. So God's led them into the promised land, which is one of the things he said he would do. And Joshua has given the people a chance to re-up. He says, you remember God called Abraham. That's verse 2. Yes. Verse 5. And he called Moses and Aaron and delivered us from Egypt. Yes. Verse 8. I brought you into this land. Yes. Verse 11. We crossed the Jericho and you've got all of this. We defeated all these armies. Yes. Then verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers or the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Then the people said, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed these great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in this land. We too will serve the Lord because he's our God. So there you have it. They recognize this is what God has done. Yeah, and we're in. And later on, Joshua says, you don't, you don't want to do this. You're not really. And they say, no, we do. We're, we're in. They've defined the relationship. That's the first five books of the Bible is, is God defining this is what it looks like to be in a relationship with a holy God. And the people say, yes, that's what we want. Judges through Malachi is a train wreck. There's a few bright spots, but in general, it's bad, 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 bad. It's hundreds and hundreds of years of thousands and thousands of people not being able to live up to their end of the deal. God sends prophets to remind them, to say, remember, this is what we, this is what we agreed to. This is what it means to be in a relationship with me. See, I'm doing my part. Where, where are y'all? And them either flat, rejecting him, or trying and failing, one or the other. Periods of hope in there where the people would repent, but they're... It's this compared to this of them train wrecking. Then there's 400 years between Malachi, that's the last book in the Old Testament, and Matthew, first book in the New Testament. There's 400 years between that and, and the Gospels when they were written. And they call those the silent years because God didn't speak the way he speaks in the Old Testament and the New. And during that time, the people, they're getting desperate. They know, well, this is... This is what it means to be in a relationship with God, and they've got hundreds of years and thousands of people who failed, and they're realizing we can't do it. We, we, we can't hold up our end of the bargain. And they begin to look, and it, throughout the Old Testament, there are these little kind of rays of hope that God's going to do something different, that he's going to send somebody. In Hebrew, it's the Messiah. In Greek, it's the Christ, the anointed one. He's going to send somebody to fix it. And this somebody is going to make things right. And again, you see these, this thread that runs throughout the Old Testament. That God's going to do something new. Isaiah 9.6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. They heard that and they said, yes, that's what we need. They're in bondage. They're under the Roman oppression. And they, they need a new Moses who's going to come and deliver them from bondage. And so they had this idea, this political warrior king who's going to come and he was going to fix it. He was going to make their nation whole again. Jeremiah 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Listen to this relational language. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So you've got this, this political thing going. They're gonna, he's going to save our country. And then this personal 
with the law. He's going to take the law and write it on our hearts. Maybe we'd have a shot at keeping it. Everybody's going to know him. So you've got these, this hope that's stirring in the people during this 400 years. They're looking for God to do some, just do something. Because what's, what has been set up, it doesn't work. We get the terms, and they're just and they're right. But we can't live up to our end of the bargain. And in the midst of that, this group comes up. They're called the Pharisees. You read about them in the Gospels. They start off, they're pretty neutral. By the end, they're not. They're, they're opposed to Jesus. These guys, they get it. They understand. We've got to keep the law. That's the way we, that, that's the terms of the relationship. We've got to keep it. And we're doing a terrible job, so let's do this. Let me help you keep the law by putting more rules around it. So God says, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, I'm going to tell you 39, I think it's 39 other ways to do that. So if, 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 if walking a mile is work, only walk three-fourths of a mile. That way if you accidentally miscalculate, you won't break this rule because you're still way out here. The Bible says don't boil a kid in its mother's milk, whatever that means. So don't do that. So to make sure you never do that, buy a set of pots and pans for meat and a set of pots and pans for dairy. That way there's never a chance you're going to break that rule. They called it building a hedge or a fence around the law. And the Pharisees did that and their hearts were right. They, they got it. We want to... Keep the law because those are the terms of this. Those are the terms of this agreement. So we need to keep the rules. But Jesus says all you're doing is making it worse. They can't keep the 613. You're adding exponentially. There's no hope. And the people at some point gave up, and they were just hoping the Pharisees could keep the law for them because they couldn't do it. They couldn't even keep up with all that stuff. And in the midst of that, Jesus is born and says, I've come to, not to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. This messianic hope that runs throughout the Old Testament, this idea that God's going to send somebody, you see that particularly in the prophets. And Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies. Somebody counted and said there's 48 major Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Let's say there is. 48 major prophecies. Jesus fulfilled every one of them. Zechariah 9, 9, the, the, the exalted one, the Messiah, he's going to come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And Jesus did that the last week of his life. And you say, well, anybody could have read that and got on a donkey and rode in. How do we know it's him? Most of the prophecies Jesus couldn't control. Born of a woman, we, all, we can all check that one off. Born of a virgin, I can't check that one off. From Abraham tribe of Judah, house of David. Those are, most of us don't have any say-so over who our parents are. Born in Bethlehem, most of us don't have any say-so over where we were born. He's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. They're going to use the money that, that 30 pieces of silver to buy a field called the potter's field. All of that stuff is in the Old Testament. He's going to be pierced. They're going to, they're going to cast lots for his clothes. All of that is in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled every one of them. And he didn't have control over most of it. Because he's the, he's the guy. He's the one that God sent. And you say, there's been 120 billion people who've lived over the history of the earth. Surely the odds are somebody's going to hit. Somebody wins the lottery every week. So who's to say Jesus didn't just win the Old Testament lottery and be the Messiah? The chances of winning the lottery are about 1 in 175 million. 
That's a 10 with eight zeros after it. The chances of somebody fulfilling all 100 or all 48 of these prophecies are one in 10 with 157 zeros after it. One in a trillion, 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 trillion. That's a big number. Really big number. Some guy one time did this illustration. We don't get big numbers. He said the chances of some dude fulfilling just eight of them randomly. Take Texas, big state. Fill it two feet deep with silver dollars and put a check mark on one of them. Stir up the state. Send a blind man in there and tell him to pick up one. And the chances that the one silver dollar he picks up has got your check mark on it. That's the same chances of somebody fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. He's the guy. He's the guy that the Old Testament told us about. He fulfilled the prophets. All of those prophecies were pointing to him, and he fulfilled them. He's the one we've been waiting for, the one who he is going to take care of the political. Not now. And that was a confusing point for a lot of people. Well, how come if he's the Messiah, how come he came as a baby and he's a, a wandering rabbi? How come he doesn't have a sword and a throne? And there was some confusion there. He's coming back to do all that. He's already been the guy who will write the law in your heart. And he did come to fulfill the law. He's the only guy, the 120 billion people who've ever lived, he's the only one who, didn't, who held up humanity's end of the deal. He's the only one who entered into this relationship with God under the terms of the old covenant, under the terms in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and actually upheld it. He never sinned. How do I, because he was raised from the dead. The penalty for sinning, for breaking the covenant, is death. And death couldn't hold him. He won. That should, he didn't have to pay the penalty. So he never sinned. He fulfilled the law. And some people get off track here. They say, well, Jesus is a great example. So I'm going to turn the other cheek, and I'm going to love my neighbor, and I'm not going to judge. Honestly, of course you are. LeBron James can show me a great example of how to do a two-handed windmill dunk. And I got zero shot at doing that because I can't jump very high. He's a great, he can be the perfect example, and he can demonstrate all day long how to do that. I'm never going to be able to do it. That's us. Jesus is not just an example. Yes, he's an example, but he's so much more than that. And if that's your thinking, I'm just going to follow his example. Let me save you the trouble. No, you're not. You can't jump that high. It's not, and neither can I. None of us can. That's where the Jews got. They had hundreds and hundreds of years and thousands and thousands of people who were on the heap of folks who tried to jump that high who couldn't. And then here comes this one guy who can. And he's the only guy who's ever been able to. And he fulfilled the law because he could jump that high. But he doesn't just fulfill it by jumping that high. That doesn't help us at all if that's all he is. He fulfills it because he brings the law to its intended purpose. Remember, the whole point of the law is to define the relationship. It was to allow us to relate to a holy God, and it didn't work. I think it's Galatians. Paul says it did not work. If it worked, then there's no reason for Jesus to come. But the law couldn't make us righteous. It couldn't make us holy. It couldn't bring us into God's presence. And what Jesus did because he perfectly lived out, he perfectly held up our end of the deal, he says, I'll make a trade. I'll give you my righteousness 
because I held up humanity's end of the deal. Why don't you give me your judgment because you failed? And that's the trade. And that's the gospel. And that's why he came. It's a trade. We can ride in on his coattails if we'll say yes to the trade. Don't take 613. Take one. Honor your father and mother. Everybody in this room has dishonored their father and mother at some point. We're all out because of that. James, he who breaks one point of the law, you broke the whole thing because one guy wrote it. That's the terms. I've got to love and honor and cherish and be faithful. I can't pick. If I blow it at one, I've I've blown the whole thing because that's what it means to be married. And the same thing is true with God. It's all of it. I mean, all of them. Just take the top ten. It's all of those ten. If you break it at one point, you've broken it at everything. And what Jesus says is you don't have to pay the penalty for that. We can trade. You give me your judgment. I'll give you my righteousness. He fulfills the law for me and for you. He fulfills it if we'll say yes and we'll let him. Ezekiel 36 says this. And we'll close. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's that's why he came. He's the one that does that. He takes... The, the relationship that's out here, and he pushes it into our hearts, and then he gives us his spirit to enable us to hold up our end of the deal. You can't beat that. He says, here's your end of the deal, and now I'm going to help you do it. You can't beat that. You trade your judgment for his righteousness. Let's pray. I know a lot of you guys, y'all have been Christians for a long time, 20 years, more. And if that's you, sometimes it can be hard to remember what it was like to be lost because you've been found for so long. You've been watching HD for a long time. You can't remember what it used to look like. My prayer for you, my challenge for you is over the course of the next month during Advent, ask the Lord to renew your zeal, your reverence, your awe for the gospel, for what he's done. And then ask him for an opportunity to give that to somebody else. It's a great gift to give for Christmas. If there are any in this room and you've never, you would say, you know what, I'm, I'm lost. I've, I've not been found. I'm wandering, I'm running, I'm whatever it is. My encouragement to you is stop. Stop wandering, stop running, he'll find you. And when he does... Follow him home. All you have to do is say yes. You trade your sin for his righteousness. And you do that by repenting and put in saying, I trust you, that's it. And he'll take care of the rest. He'll fulfill the law for you that you can't fulfill for yourself. Because... He's the one God sent. God, my prayer for all of us is that we would get it. 
that we would understand Christmas, that we would understand why you came. God, for those who this is old hat, Lord, I pray that you would renew our hearts. God, that we would be in awe again of what you've done. And God, I pray for those who haven't yet said yes. I pray this would be the Christmas. Whatever they wrote on the card, the greatest gift you want to give them is life. And Lord, I pray that they would receive that today, tomorrow. God, that they would receive all of the life that you want to give them. Whatever would hold them back, God, I pray that they would be willing to let that go in exchange for all that you want to give to them. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, we, we are going to have some ministry here at the end. So if you're, if you're helping with ministry team, if you're a ministry person, you go over here. And we're also going to do a baptism over here. So we'll have a couple of things going on. Trevor, Wolford, come on, and your parents. Trevor's home from college, so he missed our baptisms a couple of weeks ago. And being the nice people that we are, we decided it would be okay to baptize him today. So he and his parents, why don't y'all come up, are here today. Come on over here. Um, The way we do baptisms, we've got some pitchers of water, and we're going to pour water on Trevor's head. But one of the things that we believe is that God speaks to the body, through the body. And there are note cards at the end of each row on the brick side. And if you just grab one of those and pass them down. And what we've done is we're asking, as we baptize him, that if God puts something in your heart for Trevor, you'd write it down up. Scripture, a picture, a word of encouragement. Everyone that we've baptized, we've done this for, and we we pass all of this stuff on to them, and they're always so appreciative to get a stack of note cards of this is what we feel like the Lord has for you or says to you. And it can be as simple as God loves you or whatever it is that you feel like the Lord stirs your heart for. When Jesus was baptized, God spoke words of identity, you're my son, and words of blessing with you, I'm well pleased. And so that's kind of... That's where we want to run with this. It doesn't matter if you know Trevor, if you've ever seen him before. God has. And there are things that he wants to say to him today. So my encouragement to you is while we're doing this, that you would pray also. And that if the Lord puts something in your heart, write it down. And you can just leave it on your chair. And um, we'll grab everything and get it to him uh, this week. So why don't you stand in the pool. I'm going to ask you a few questions. You can look that way. And then... Uh, you can talk. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Yes, I do. Excellent. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, who rose again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God, from where he'll come to judge the quick and the dead? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes, sir. Why don't you tell us why you want to be baptized today? Um, I guess the summer before. Christ, and I'm in the middle of my junior year of college, and he's just transformed. Mm-hmm. And I really felt called while I was home to uh, be baptized, and it's really important. Amen. That's great. Why don't you kneel? You can face down. We can grab some of this water. Trevor, we baptize you in the name of the Father, 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, we do thank you for what you've been doing in Trevor's life. And just like you said to Jesus, he is your son, and with him you're well pleased. And God, my prayer for him is that that truth would penetrate to the core of who he is, that he would live every day for the rest of his life in the security of knowing he is your son, and with him you're well pleased. God, I know you have plans and purposes for him, and we want to pray that he would walk fully in every good thing that you have for him. But God, I pray that he would do that from a secure place of knowing who he is in Christ, of knowing that today, today you say to him, I love you, I'm pleased with you. Whether you ever do anything, anything for the rest of your days, I love you because I do. I love you because you're my son. And Lord, I pray that that truth would penetrate his heart. And God, I pray for grace for him um, to communicate that to other people. Lord, I pray that the folks who are around him, there be kind of this infectious joy in Trevor that would draw people to him. And he would, he would very naturally share what you've done in his heart and just the genuineness and the authenticity of who he is. I pray it would